companies grow exponentially and people grow linearly. So when you put yourself in a position as CEO where the role basically changes every six months in terms of what the core focus is, you should feel imposter syndrome in certain situations. But as long as you keep in mind that like you are growing linearly and the company is growing exponentially, but you as CEO are going to be the person who's there longer than anybody, you just have to be like, this is part of the journey that I'm on. Hi, I'm Jubin operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration about how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Enjoy. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on this show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out. There are companies in the KP portfolio that I would have dreamed of working for as an operator. Let's see if we can't find your next great career move. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jubin. Really excited. I always start these things the same way, which is to read my guests' backgrounds back to them. So I will read you your background to you. When I screw up, let me know, and we will go from there. Perfect. Great. So you got your bachelor's of science from Indiana University. You then went to redesign agency as the co-founder, head of biz dev, did that for about three years, then went to media pass as the director of operations, did that for about a year. I actually think you were media passes client or vice versa, something along those lines while you were at redesign, they were your client. And then you went to mylife.com, director of product, two years there. Then in January of 2016, things started to get quite interesting for you. You co-founded a company called Loom, which you are now the CEO of. How'd I do? Pretty good. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I would say is I actually, much to my parents' chagrin, dropped out 12 credit hours short of getting my degree because at that time I'd started redesign agency. My degree was going to be in economics and those two were radically different from one another. And I was just going to go build web design development, branding, identity for Silicon Beach based startups in California. So I just dropped out of school and, and did that. And then uh, the rest is history. Isn't 12 credits three classes? Yes. So, well, <laughs> it's depending on how many credits per class, it could be that it's four credits per class. Indiana was typically three. But the challenge was is that two of the four classes that were required for me to take were required for me to be on campus. And my partner and I were like, we're moving to California. So I tried to negotiate with the school to let me do it remotely. Remote learning is a little bit more popular these days than it was back then. <laughs> But yeah, they basically told me, no, I had to be in Bloomington, Indiana. And so I said, it's time for me to start my life. All right. So, dude, you grew up in Chicago, family of Midwest entrepreneurs. I've heard you say that your grandpa Wally owned a printing company and is your all-time hero. Tell me more about that. Yeah, Wally, I was just thinking about him earlier today. I think about him all the time. I lived 15 minutes from him my entire upbringing. My mom was born and raised in Naperville. That's where I was born and raised. And... He was always a very proud business owner and he would tell me that you got to come in and hang out in the office. This wasn't take your child or take your grandchild to work day. This was just a regular day. And I would sit in the office with him and I learned 
a lot from him. He was very good at sharing anecdotes and stories and like sharing life lessons. But I also learned just as much indirectly because he welcomed me into his world and, and brought me around. And so some of the things that I learned from him is, you know, he always said, treat people on the way up as you do on the way down, because you never know when you're on the way up or on the way down. Every client was equal in his eyes. And he was also a servant leader where like he cared deeply about his 12 employees. On average, the tenure of the folks that worked for him worked for him for over two decades. And so he was just a man of the people as much as you possibly could be. And he took a lot of pride in the business that he ran. And the most important thing I think he gave me was just the belief that you could do anything that you wanted. Like you could start a business, whatever you wanted it to be. So you'd always ask me relatively early on, what do you want to do? And I think that when you're put into a certain education system and it's like, you got to learn these things, you got to do this and that, like he would just ask me what I cared about and what I wanted to do. So, you know, the combination of all those things, when I had a relatively episodic career between redesign agency and it was like one year at a startup, two years at another one, and then starting Loom. To me, it was always kind of waiting for the right idea and the right people that I wanted to work multiple decades with. And so I, all of that kind of stems from my early learnings with my grandpa Wally. So you went to, you said Silicon Beach, that's like Venice, Santa Monica area, right? Yeah, yeah. That was a self-proclaimed nickname by them at the time. Yeah, you know, right. it, was, it was kind of like fetch a little bit, you know, they're trying to make it work. I think it started when Google moved into the Venice, like under the Main Street office there. And I think maybe they're the only tech company that's actually gone down there since. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the real breakthrough for them, like the zero to one startup in Venice was Snap. So once Google and Snap were in Venice, then it had a little bit more legitimacy and cachet. Were you there when Snap was on the up and up? Yes. And that was so fascinating to witness because you would walk along the Venice boardwalk and there was Snap's kind of famous office. It was just this beach house with the big yellow icon with the ghost in the middle. And it felt iconic. I was really inspired by the company very early on. And, and it was a huge influence in terms of what we thought about for Loom and what change we could potentially bring to the workplace. Now, I would say that the other part of Snap is that it was very mysterious. You know, they had that one beach house, but then you would always hear that they had offices spread all around Venice and you never knew which house was the Snap office. So there was that one that was on the Venice boardwalk that fit about 12 employees. But they, by the time that I was there, they were at hundreds of employees and you just never knew where they were at or what they were doing. Looking back on it now, do you feel like you were truly inspired by Snap or do you feel like there is a narrative that would be easy to reconstruct as you've built video messaging for work and Snap built video messaging for individuals? When you saw that company at that time, what part of it inspired you? Like which part of that company? Like was it the video? I guess I just love to hear more about the inspiration. No, I mean, it's a super fair question. And I think about revisionist history all the time and not to quote something that I do think is overquoted, but I, I think you can only connect the dots looking backwards, which is what Steve Jobs said. And I do believe at the time we were subconsciously very influenced by the Snap product. 
it was unbelievable to see some of their early AR filters and what that could do in terms of people's comfort with video and their willingness to record and share with one another. They also had the most innovative UI on a mobile device that I'd ever seen. Everything was hidden behind swipes and you had to swipe left or swipe right to like engage with the app. All of that was, you heard it later on, but they did it very intentionally because they wanted to keep the parents out of the app. They wanted to make a confusing UI. But to me, it felt very like clean and it felt very engaging and it felt very fluid. And uh, I think that they just pushed the boundaries of what was possible based off of all of the incredible hardware that was packed into iPhones. Like they were able to leverage it all. So in terms of its influence on Loom, I think it was bold and innovative. It was also showing that you could use visual communication as a default mode of communication versus text-based communication as being the default. They certainly had the messenger back and forth, but you open to the camera, right? That is like assumed nowadays, but was radical back then is that you open directly to the camera. The reason being is because it would take three seconds for the camera to load. And you're like, oh, the load time of an app is incredibly important. So what I would say as it relates to Loom is when we showed up, we had to bring three ideas to the whiteboard. It was myself and my two co-founders. And I was a product manager by trade. Shahid was a designer by trade. And Vinay was an engineer by trade. And we had decided that we wanted to start working on something together. And we each had to bring three ideas to the table. And one of them was we felt like video feedback could be significantly easier than it was to collect from various groups of individuals. And so we set out to build a video feedback platform in a way that leveraged a lot of consumer UI to make it easier and make people more comfortable with recording. Did we believe that we were going to get to day-to-day -day general communication medium with Loom and what it is today and what we're building against? No. Like, I think that that would have been an incredibly ambitious goal. But did we copy a lot of the UI from a consumer app to Loom and was very influenced by how they ended up building their app? Yes. And that, that was something that we were a little bit more conscious about. The load time piece is interesting. I was listening to um, Kevin Sistrom, who's an investor of Loom talk to, I think, Lex Friedman, some, some podcast. What he was saying, and I think you probably know where I'm going with this, but in the early days of Instagram, and you know better than I do, so just tell me that I'm, where I'm wrong here, but in the early days of Instagram, the lightning in a bottle that they captured was by the time someone had put the Instagram photo into the app and maybe put a filter on it or whatever, they had already on the back end started feeding it into the system so that as soon as you hit post, the lag time between hitting the button and it showing up on someone else's feed felt almost magical. And even when you listen to Kevin's rationale, and they don't do very many investments. So even when you listen to his rationale for why he invested in Loom, one of the things that he talks about is that magic that he refelt in the way that things load so quickly. And it's such a small, nuanced point. But you, you said load time. So it made me think of that. We all stand on shoulders of giants when we build whatever we're building. And I think that the original giant that still continues to be a juggernaut as Google. They used to talk about that they needed to shave off 100 milliseconds of their page load speed for search results. And that was directly correlative with more and more searches on the platform. And they popularized kind of like this concept of 
having an entire team department dedicated to speed. So I think when Mikey and Kevin went to go build Instagram and they thought about making it render instantaneously, you wouldn't think that that three second difference in load of the picture, I, I don't actually know the specifics of what they were optimizing for. But I know that that sort of instantaneousness, Vinay, the engineer, he was like, look, not only can we build an incredible recorder, but I can make it render instantaneously. And we had this debate in the early days of Loom. I mean, he is a technical wizard. Like, I, I don't know. Your co-founder, Vinay. My co-founder, Vinay. And I don't know if I'll ever meet another engineer quite like him, particularly because he had worked on distributed systems and a video product at a company called UpThere, which was, you can think of it as like a competitor to Dropbox. So he specifically worked on their video upload product. and. Uh, for Loom, he was like, look, I need another month, but I can make the videos render instantaneously. And for us, we basically said, okay, let's delay it for a little bit longer. And that's actually the core secret sauce. We have a patent on our video streaming infrastructure, so that way videos render instantaneously. And I think that that radically shaped people's view on can video recording and sharing be a day-to-day -day medium of communication at work? And just because it rendered instantaneously, we took out a lot of the wait time. So it opened up the purview of what different use cases could be. And so, like I said, we build on the shoulders of giants. And so I think Google, Instagram, all those guys who optimized for the ability to make products render faster, we just knew that that worked. So let's do that for Loom. Yeah, you talk about, or it's talked about a lot, the consumerization of, of enterprise. I think this is a a pretty good use case for that. Quickly on Loom, founded in 2015, uh, today has over 203 million in funding. General Catalyst did the C, Kleiner did the A, Sequoia did the B, Co2 did the B plus, which I still don't know what a B plus means. Andreessen did the C, valuations at a billion and a half or something. I think most importantly, growth is like 900% year over year. It's crazy stupid numbers. 14 million users spanning over 200,000 companies, including Netflix, Atlassian. Before I get into any of this, what is Loom? Loom is video recording and sharing for work. You can think of it like if you want the most simple, archaic description of it. It's like sending somebody a video voicemail. The difference for Loom is that over 90% of the recordings that happen is on your desktop device and it has screen context. So somebody is recording something on their screen with a superimposed camera bubble that's very fun and interactive. And so you're basically walking through a vast majority of knowledge work today still happens on desktop on your screen. And the ability to show what you're working on and walk somebody through explaining something that you're working on is incredibly powerful for all people who are at work. So right when you're done recording your screen with a nice little camera bubble, we pop open a new web page, you grab that link and you share it with somebody else. Now, there's a couple other product experiences that I'll just share very quickly. We also have a Loom SDK that allows for any product or platform to implement one-click recording directly within their experience. That's all built on Loom's best-in-class video infrastructure. And then the other product pillar that we have is 
we are building an intelligent video system of record. So a lot of organizations, when they start using Loom, like you mentioned, Atlassian as one of our customers at the top of the call, when they started using Loom, they had approximately 500 videos across the organization that they used for LMS purposes, that they used for culture purposes, that they used for help center reasons. But when you start using Loom to communicate on a daily basis, I already told you that I'm recording seven to eight a day. Right, like how quickly do I hit that 500 number? Atlassian has well into the six figures videos that they have recorded across the entire organization. So that's why the third pillar for Loom is a intelligent video system of record. How do we take the hundreds of thousands of videos that you have across your organization and make them as valuable as possible? My favorite way of using it, and I'm trying so hard not to be biased and be a total fanboy, but nonetheless, my favorite way of using it is I do a quarterly review and I basically treat the partnership as my board and I have a bunch of thoughts that I want to share in advance of our meeting. So I will go through my slide deck as if I'm recording the screen. My ugly mug is in a circle powered by Loom, like in the corner there. I'm talking through my deck and I will basically present it in advance, ask everyone to go through it. I can see when everyone has gone through it and generally they'll comment on the areas or slides that they have questions on, that they like, whatever it is. And then once we get to the meeting, basically it's just talking about outcomes. What are the things that we wanna do from this rather than spending the first 20 to 30 minutes with me presenting this thing? Then I will actually take that loom and I'll send it to the rest of the firm. So that way everyone has context on exactly what I'm doing pretty much every quarter. It's just been a really interesting way of changing up the way that I think about it. Yeah. So to build on that, you're using it in like the perfect way to maximize the value for that specific use case being, we don't say that Loom is a meeting replacement. Meetings are incredibly valuable. Humans like to bounce ideas off of one another. Like imagine doing this interview in an asynchronous manner. It just wouldn't feel as special. We wouldn't be able to dig into some of the nuances, right? But what we are is we're meeting reduction and we're meeting enhancers. And so what that means is you can take a 60 minute meeting and reduce it to 30 minutes. And the 30 minutes that you're actually having is that everybody's consumed it in advance. So they've had a chance to think about it. And then what you want to optimize your live time for is what we call bursty communication. This is actually like there's white papers out there about it, but optimal team meeting time is for bursty communication. I like to visualize it like a ball, like maybe you remember kindergarten and whoever has the ball is the one who's allowed to talk. In a meeting, what you want to optimize for is the number of times that you pass the ball. And that means that the idea is being shaped and organized over the course of the discussion. So use your live time for discussion. Do not use it for information dissemination. And when you send the information in advance, everybody will have a better discussion. So bursty communication, incredibly important for team efficiency. Your wife is eight plus months pregnant. She's due what? In a week, right? February 7th. Today Are you checking is, your calendar? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, what, what is today? Uh, it's January 27th, the day that we're recording. She's due February 7th. Wow. You are now in Atlanta. You moved from the Bay Area, which is your wife's family is from there, right? From Savannah or something? She has a sister and an aunt here. Her mom was born and raised in Atlanta and she went to school at SCAD, uh, Savannah College of Art and Design. And so a lot of deep roots here. 
if more Kleiner CEOs keep popping up in Atlanta, we're going to have to have an office out there. I mean, we're starting to get a little bit of a quorum between you and Sean Henry, Scott from Full Story. I guess the question that I had as you're approaching the day, and by the time this episode releases, the day will have already definitely come. Like, you're a pretty young guy. Like, all you've thought about pretty much your entire life, definitely probably since 2016, is Loom. Like, has your mindset shifted yet? Like, you think it's going to happen the day the baby's born? I'm just curious, as you're on the precipice of a kid, how do things change? I keep hearing from fellow founders that I talk to to get advice, particularly CEOs. The parallel that they draw is that you're never ready to start a company and you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. It's the same thing. They're like, it's the exact same thing with a kid. You never know what you're getting yourself into. You never know how much work it's going to be, but it's the most rewarding thing that you'll do in that pillar of your life. So you have career, you have family, and the relationship that you end up having over the course of time with your kid is just one of the most profound life experiences. Building your own company and hopefully if you get a shit ton of luck, pardon my French, then you can have some success with it and it'll be the most rewarding experience of your career. And so to me, I think that I give myself a little bit of peace by saying that I'm very nervous, I'm very anxious for the kid to be in this world. If I were to put it on like the spectrum, I'm 90% excited, 10% nervous. Um, And that's because what everybody keeps telling me is that, again, the parallel is let your instincts kick in. I think that nobody's really ready to be a CEO and you just have to operate instinctually. And so it's the same thing with a kid. I think that how does my worldview change and how does my day-to-day change? I think that we're incredibly fortunate to be in a window of time where paternity leave should be the norm and it is. I'm going to get a chance to take some time with my wife and my new baby girl to like really start to see what the shape of the new life is post kid. And then from there, I'll be able to go back to work and then see how those two meld together. But first and foremost, I got to make sure that the family is right. And so I'll be taking pat leave. And I think that that's incredibly important that everybody take paternity leave, regardless of what role that you have within the organization. And then, man, I'm going to hope that instincts kick in because I have no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) It's like the 90% excited, 10% nervous, where you're not actually sure what the difference between excited and nervous even feels like anymore. It's just two sides of the same coin, right? (laughs) Exactly. Well, dude, we're stoked for you. Thank you. The good news is that along with the money that Kleiner gives you, we also have some incredible baby swag, like might be the best thing that we could possibly do for our founders. So that should be coming your way shortly. Yeah, a little shameless plug. Loom just had our own Loom shop drop. So if you want any Loom swag, but what we don't have in there is baby gear, which I didn't know that we have. It's sitting on my desk. I know it's a podcast, (laughs) but I'm just going to show you. Yeah, we got like little bib. Those are unbelievable. I wasn't expecting it at all. And it just showed up yesterday and I was so smitten. So now I'm going to need all of the baby gear. Please, Kleiner Perkins, send it to me. (laughs) Oh, it's coming. And dude, I'll trade you. Maybe I could have a loom sweater or something. I don't have anything. We will send you stuff right after this. Deal. Good. Okay. You want a bucket hat, by the way? A loom bucket hat? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Actually, so you want to hear a funny story about a bucket hat? Absolutely. I was with the CIO of McDonald's, brought some of our portfolio in, 
I think you came. It was part of the hackathon. And as a part of the hackathon, I was a judge. And they sent all the judges. It was me, the CIO, some others. They sent all the judges McDonald's bucket hats. And they required us to wear them. And my buddy, we were in New York City at the time. And he said, um, I'll pay for your dinner and the drinks all night if you wear the bucket hat out. And I was like, are you kidding me? Of course, done. So anyway, it is it is ugly. It is an ugly bucket hat. And I wore it out all night. So I imagine the Loom one is a little bit cooler. And, and yes, I'm in. Well, I mean, we're going to, through our camera, we'll have AR and we're going to recognize whether or not you're wearing the bucket hat. And Loom <laughs> will be disabled unless you're wearing it for every Loom recording. <laughs> That's so terrifying that you can do all of that. Okay, so I have a ton of questions. Can I just start rapid firing basically as many as I possibly can in the time that we have? Yep. And I'll do my best with rapid fire answers. First of all, and I meant that genuinely, what is a B plus? I was hoping you were going to go back around to that because I've made some branding mistakes over the course of time, right? Like if I were to just open test was the original branding when I was talking about building a video feedback platform. But when we were launching what is now Loom, we were like, let's call it open vid as the Chrome extension that we were launching. And then people kept writing in. I was like, I don't know what the difference between open test and open vid is. When I'm done recording an open vid, it goes to opentests.co. I'm so confused. Like, how do these two work together? So eventually we were like, we were going to rebrand anyways. And we just called it all Loom. But that was really poor branding on my part. <laughs> um, from a Loom fundraise perspective, we had raised the Series B from Sequoia in September of 2019. COVID, as most everyone knows, happened largely stateside in March of 2020. So six months later, it was an off-cycle fundraise. We had increasing growth, um, which you know, video is pretty hard from a technical builds and infrastructure perspective. So we said, if we don't know what's going to happen from a world perspective, let's put a little bit more cash in the bank. And because it was an off-cycle fundraise and Sequoia was co-leading it, we just decided to say it was like a B extension. However, it was at a significant valuation increase. We didn't want to label it Series C yet, and we didn't want to call it extension because typically like that's a bridge to your next round, and that's not what it was. So we just called it a B plus and not sure that that branding is going to stick or make it to other uh, startups. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You got the big dogs on the cap table, which is what's important. Speaking of like funding, and I want to touch on this because I just want to get your state of the state in Joe's mind, January 27th of 2022. We actually were supposed to do this on Monday. And come Monday, the S&P fell 2%, I think that day or Friday. Most high growth tech stocks today are down 40 to 50%. Like, one of the biggest oscillations that we've seen in quite some time. And the line of thinking would, would go that as public market valuations, specifically in tech, start to compress, you would see a trickle down in private market. We haven't talked about this, but I assume that this was kind of like a you going to the board or the team and being like, what do we do? What are you seeing? Tell me about those conversations, whatever you feel comfortable sharing. Look, I mean, I think that it's a prudent conversation that every founder is having that it's like an impossible to ignore sort of situation. Right? Everybody's affected by the economy. I'm also didn't exactly get my economics degree and don't like to be an armchair economist, but being a really good founder and CEO is actually wall you're globally maximizing the opportunity that you have in front of you. 
It also is largely in how are you hedging risk at every single turn. And so the conversation that we have with the board is, what did we raise our last round at? Like, what do we need to do in order to grow into that valuation? And how do you make sure, I think it's one of the more catastrophic events that a company can experience, which is raising a down round. There's a whole variety of things that happen, but the most damaging thing is, does the best talent in the world have excitement to come and join your company and build the best version of it possible? So with that said, I think that it's just prudent to say, where are we at from a fundraise perspective? How much cash do we have in the bank? The thing that you kind of have to remind yourself is, zoom out a little bit, you know, take the three to five year perspective in both directions. And for Loom and uh, the particular position we're in right now, we know that there was more unicorns minted last year than there were in the previous three years. I saw a stat, I haven't verified it myself, but the amount of dollars invested into startups was more than the previous four years combined. And so there's just a lot of liquidity in the market. And what that means is that Loom has a ton of cash in the bank that we have degrees of freedom going forward that we don't need to rush in order to make any sort of decisions. We just need to make sure that if the market does something that means that our customers end up tightening their belts a little bit, that we just need to have degrees of freedom in terms of being a little bit more conservative with our operational model. And we have those permutations internally. We know what we need to do if things get a little bit uglier from a broader market perspective. But I think the board is great advisors and consultants in this situation, which is the fact that like, have your plan, and make sure that like, if things change, you know what you're going to do. But beyond that, just keep building day to day. The most important thing you can do as a founder and a builder and as a collective team is keep building. I had the president of Coinbase on, Emily Choi. You know, talk about swings. She was telling me a story about how Brian, their CEO, and a lot of the hardcore crypto folks love the winters. And let's just use winter as a proxy for a big swing in the market because it's like, that's when the fakers get out and then they can just focus on building. That's all they do. They're like, look, our underlying business hasn't changed at all. This is just an opportunity for us to keep on building. So anyway, probably the same here. Underlying business mechanics haven't changed. The goal for any great leader is to hire people who are like way smarter than you. And I increasingly feel that at Loom and during our company offsite, I was joking around because we had to go after our finance leader. And like when I say we, my co-founder, we presented after her and I was like, why do you make us go after her? You know, she's so good. Now you're making me go after the president of Coinbase. That's a lot, Jubin. Oh, man. So I have some funny questions for you about the early days, I guess, back when we were involved. So when you were raising the Series A, I don't believe the business was monetized in any way. Is that correct? And I believe that was a very deliberate decision. Tell me more. Yep. So back when you all were involved, just my huge shout out to Ilya Fushman, who was our first board member outside of the co-founders and you know, just been an incredible thought partner from even before officially getting involved through to, you know, the board meeting that we had on Tuesday, pushing on us in a way that like, how do we continue to evolve as individuals and as a company? So to answer the question directly, 
we were not monetized, zero dollars in revenue. That's what made it incredibly difficult to raise our Series A. We actually had a healthy and growing user base. And the big question mark was, why is this not just a feature? Why is it a platform? Why is it something that you can monetize against? And I had run a survey, like a, a series of surveys about how we could monetize our user base. Like, and it was pretty diligent. I did max diff survey to understand here's feature sets that we could potentially build, like which ones are most valuable and least valuable to you. And you get like a list of 12 different features stack ranked. And I had also passed through all of their persona data. So I knew which features would be most valuable for salespeople, for engineers, for designers, for executives and also by size of company. What did big companies care about versus small SMBs or one-person shops? And had that information and then put out designs and was like, hey, would you all actually pay for this? And then on the other side of it is what were they willing to pay? Now, the what were they willing to pay still took about three weeks to construct the survey from end to end. And what it ended up popping out, I was like, I wasted essentially a month was like they were willing to pay $10 per user per month, like all B2B SaaS companies, you know, like I didn't, <laughs> didn't need to reinvent the wheel on the pricing side. But anyways, we had a lot of really strong data that was both user growth and also what were folks willing to pay for. But it was still really difficult to raise our Series A because we were a B2B SaaS product and we had zero revenue. And a lot of folks were like, are you building a consumer app in disguise? Like, just tell us if you're building a consumer app. Most companies will have at least a million in revenue by now, and we had zero. Were there any early signals or tells that there was like, hey, this is, might be our career. Like, this might be a business for a very long time. Like, customer feedback, someone going on Twitter and going crazy about how valuable the product is. Maybe it was a fundraise, though it's typically not, and you know before the fundraise actually happens. Maybe it was a huge month. I don't know. I'm just throwing things against the wall here. But any early signals in your mind where you and the founders looked at each other like, oh boy, like we might have something? Yep. First, I think it starts with the team. We had four major pivots and we started building in September 2015. And uh, what we're building today didn't launch until June of 2016. So it was nine months of a slog. And we had the classic startup founder story where I moved up from Santa Monica to San Mateo. And I literally threw a twin mattress on the floor of Shahid's bedroom. And that's where I slept for two months was we shared a room and I slept on the floor. And we just woke up every day and we built for 16 hours, seven days a week. And that was how we got through four major pivots in order to land on what we're currently building today. But to the specific moment that you're asking about, it's a memory I think about all the time, which is that we had literally thousands of dollars in the bank. I think it was like $1,800 in the bank. Wasn't enough to cover our rent at the time. And we had server costs coming up. And so we were going to be dwindled and like at zero pretty quickly. The only reason we had $1,800 in the bank is because my college friends loaned us $10,000 and was like, I just believe in you all. So like, here's 10K and keep building. And I had to go to my one of my best friend's wedding. I was one of the groomsmen, so I couldn't skip it. And so I went to Chicago and left the two guys back in San Francisco. And we were launching what I mentioned before is OpenVid, what is now Loom, on that Thursday evening, which is like essentially Friday morning when you're launching on Product Hunt. It's 12.01 AM. And so they did that. 
And you always get the 24-hour bump from Product Hunt. You're like, oh, we get a bunch of users to sign up. They start using the product. But what you have to wait for is day two, day three, day four. How big of a drop-off do you see? And for all three previous launches prior to that, you saw the 24 hours up, and then we were basically back to zero the next day. With OpenVid and Loom, we launched. And on that Saturday, I woke up. You know, it's Saturday morning of a wedding, so wasn't feeling that great. But the first thing I did was rolled over at 7.30 a.m., opened my laptop, went to an analytics dashboard, and we were on an hourly basis seeing approximately the equivalent number of signups that we were on that Friday morning of launch from Product Hunt. And I turned to my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, and said, we did it. I don't know what we did, but we did it because we had more users coming back the next day on a Saturday and still using it. So we knew right then that we had launched something that seemed to have some stickiness and some retention. From there, we very quickly ran a survey and we said, who's using it? What are they using it for? And we saw that it was a variety of users who were using the product and they were using it for a variety of use cases. So for us, we very quickly realized that we had built something of significance. We actually were able to get our our pre-seed lead 1517, it was that Monday after the Friday that we launched that they gave us a term sheet. So that was all like we were kind of like on our last dollar, but it was pretty quickly that we realized that we had built something of significance. What year was that? That was 2017? 2016. So it was June of 2016 that we launched the Chrome extension. And it started as a Chrome extension only, correct? Correct. I have an interview with Calendly this afternoon. It's interesting because they started as a Chrome extension and they also started free. And the function of why they started free was because they had just enough money to build the features and functionality for calendaring, but not enough money to build for the monetization. So they kind of like just stopped the driveway 10 feet short of where they should have. And it ended up being a interesting kind of virality loop for that. By the way, looping back to what you were saying around uh, Atlanta-based companies, that's Calendly. I'm actually meeting up with Tope, the CEO, for coffee on Monday morning. That's right. And I think they've only taken money from Atlanta-based venture firms, if I'm not mistaken. Like, I think OpenView is an Atlanta firm. If the, if- Until very recently, uh, their most recent round was led by uh, Iconic. But yeah, oh, it was. That okay. was yeah, Tope is, um, he's a city guy for sure. Dude, who would have thought the Atlanta tech scene blowing up? I want to get your take on a quote that you have said before somewhere. You said communication is the mother of all skills. What does that mean? I just think that we, similar to fish and water, do you recognize that how instrumental and just infinitely important communication is? It's just like you're doing it all day, every day that you don't recognize how important communication is. And I think that thinking about how is communication defined, it's just like any input and output that ends up happening for you. And to me, that means that it's the basis for all learning. It means it's the basis for all relationships. It means it's the basis for how you grow as an individual and human over the course of your years. And so when I say that communication is the mother of all skills, I just think that that means that it's like the starting point for everything that you do throughout your life. And if you can invest intentionally in how you end up developing that skill over the course of time, it will just pay unbelievable dividends over the course of your life. That was a great answer. That's what I was hoping to get. Okay, so in, what was it, 17, we raised the A, early 2017, is that right? 
It was actually, the fundraisers were spaced out quite a bit. We had a term sheet in late 2018, and then we closed the round officially, like right before the holidays. So 2019 is when we started building the company. So, well, when I say the company, like we just started hiring more aggressively with the new funds before it was like a product. So like, okay, you've tried these different startups. You've dreamed of this moment. You get your series A, things are working. Metrics in the business look good. You have a team, you have co-founders that you're really proud to be building a business with. You've hired some good early people. You have a bunch of money in the bank. End of 2018, rolling into 2019. On the outside looking in, things were great. What was it on the inside looking out? Same thing, great. It was the hardest window of my CEO career, honestly, because we were still only 15 people at that time. And I was wearing all of the hats. Like I was still the core product manager for an increasingly complex product offering. I was still doing a lot of the fundraising by myself in terms of all of the data polls, all of the like getting into the details for any sort of follow-up from investors. And then from there, you get the money and your resource allocator. And the best way to resource allocate is hire more people. And we're hiring a lot of zero to one for roles that I've never hired before. Our first marketer, our first business operations person, our first product manager. Like I was a product manager by trade, but had I ever hired a product manager myself? No. And so these were all zero to one processes that I had to figure out. And it was really hard to juggle the core product strategy, even doing bug bashes with the team during the day. And then at night, going home, eating dinner, maybe getting to the gym, and then getting back on the laptop until 1 or 2 a.m. in order to get recruiting outreach going. We're first-time founders across the board. Do I look back and I'm like, wow, I could be way more efficient there? Absolutely, yes. But during the time, are you kind of like blinders on and just trying to plow through the work? Yes. So I would say it was fantastic to get the Series A. It was a very big moment from an external perspective, but internally, it was the hardest six months of my CEO career. Doesn't that almost make it worse? Because there's an expectation that you should feel a certain way. And maybe that expectation comes from others, but it also kind of comes from yourself. Like you find yourself just beating yourself up. Like, dude, how could I be feeling this way? This is the moment that I've been waiting for on the horizon. All of those efforts that I've made throughout my career were leading up to this moment. And I've thought about this for so long. Now that I'm here, everyone else is like, dude, you did it. You're doing it. Doesn't that almost exacerbate the feeling of, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into internally? 100%. No. I mean, I think that that's part of what felt so difficult about it is like you even think about how do you kind of like balance your life and when you go to hang out with friends who like want to congratulate you and like have a celebratory dinner and drinks on a Friday night you're like I am so exhausted all I want to do is just like lay on my couch for a second you're like why don't I want to do these sorts of things that I used to like really love and do so like the things that pre-loom in that like three-year window between companies that you had found like really filled your cup. You don't even do those. So like compounds in terms of your emotional state about how you feel, you're not doing the things that you feel like are healthy. And then all you're doing is thinking about work is it's a really difficult time. But I think that that's where surrounding yourself with great people 
is the most important thing. My wife, Maggie, incredibly supportive. My co-founder, Vinay, Shahid had taken a step back from the day to day because he's a zero to one guy and loves that phase, which is why he's now has his own VC firm, Hyper. And so he's a zero to one phase individual. Basically, I had my wife, I had my co-founder, Vinay, and then I had my executive coach. And then I had the rest of the Lumates who were all like deeply empathetic individuals. And they made sure to like take care of me. And I think that being able to have open and honest conversations about where I'm at emotionally is what helps you kind of get through this window of time of trying to keep and maintain perspective. But the default mode is I'm exhausted. This is incredibly hard, but there's light at the end of the tunnel because you'd make that great product marketing hire. You'd make that amazing business operations hire. Like things start to be taken off your plate little by little and you're making progress on it. I think as long as progress was happening, that's where you could continue to move forward and feel a little bit better about it. You made an interesting comment about like you had your support system and part of your support system was the team, the members of your of Loom. A lot of CEOs think that they are the knight in shining armor, armor being the operative word. They're we're like they have to kind of be something and someone they're not to a lot of people and hide their internal state because vulnerability is weakness, not only in themselves, but in the business. You didn't feel that way, it sounds like. So I think that when I moved to San Francisco, I was like, this is for career purposes. Like I'm going to build a company. So I didn't really cultivate a friend group outside of Loom and like Loomates were my friends. And during that window, I mean, we still actually have employee one, two, and three are still on the team today. Paulius was engineer and employee number one. Brittany was designer number one. And Susanna was support member number one. And, you know, we actually genuinely liked to spend time around one another. Were we working for 98, 99% of the time that we spent around each other? Yes. But were we able to just kind of share what our color status was of red, yellow, green and do that bi-directionally? I think is something that was incredibly helpful for me to have that support system from early employees who were deeply empathetic individuals. Now, I think as the company has grown, to be clear, and you don't have those multiple years of like going through hardships together. I was just talking to our VP of product, Anik, about this the other day, where it's like, it's been interesting working in a remote context because some of the things that were tough in going into the office four to five days a week, which is what I did prior to COVID, um, is like, you just have to think about every little action that you do because my desk was sitting amongst the desks of all the Lumates. And there's just like that 10 hours of perfection that you needed. So that was like a sentiment that grew over the course of time. But during that 2019 window, it was still a core group of 12 people who all like knew each other and like really built relationships over the course of the years. So I felt like I had that support system with their early employees. Really cool. The other thing that you said was that you would go home, eat, maybe work out, and then start recruiting at night. I would argue that a CEO's job, really, you could overly simplify down to set strategy, raise money, and recruit. If you do those things pretty well, like, yeah, you'll be all right. And the, the recruiting thing really never stops. So it, it's, tell me more about like when you went home, what did you do? What did recruiting look like? 
Why did you make it such a priority? You know, would you end every day recruiting? It wasn't like that's what happened every day. There's just some things that take less cognitive load to do. So Loom was always actually a little bit of a beneficiary of having a large and growing user base. Whenever we would put a role live, we would have like 100 applicants. But that takes time to click through to each resume, review it relatively quickly and see if you want to move it to a phone call. Or the other side of it is sourcing, right? Is like, can you take a role like a product marketer and go through and say, here's 20 companies that we actually really respect from a product marketing perspective and find all of the product marketers there and just put them into our applicant tracking system. And these are relatively low cognitive load things that I could do in the evening. Now, a lot of my day from like nine to let's just say six or seven was for meetings. So like interviews, you can't do those in the evenings, right? And you actually want to be fresh because you got to sell that strategy. You got to sell that vision and also making sure that you're processing the interview. And then also there's product strategy stuff. So you don't want the employees to feel like they have to be working evening hours. They did because it was like, we're fighting for survival sort of thing. But for the most part, you built products during the day. And so those were the two things was like interviews and product building were kind of like the nine to six. And then I would go home and I would do a lot of the kind of recruiting of what is now like sourcing and uh, processing applications. And so that just felt like that's what it naturally ended up becoming. And taking that a step further, the other comment that you made was like, Jubin, I've been a PM, but I've never hired a PM before. When you're hiring for these roles, especially in the early days for the first time, how did you learn how to do that? How did you start to benchmark what great look like so that at least you had some reference point when you're in these interviews? One of the most helpful resources, there's a book called Who, and it is kind of a framework to think about generally how to recruit folks and that was the base level template that we had created for ourselves and interviews actually from like position to position, whatever it is, is like one third drag and drop is like, what is the structure of the interviews that you're running? What is some of the actual one for one interviews, like cultural value interviews is like uniform across all positions that you're hiring for that book laid out a really great template for How do you end up going to recruit for folks? And then as you go into specialties, I think we're, again, building on the shoulders of giants. We're incredible beneficiaries of the internet that has an unbelievable amount of resources for things like this, even for like, how do you hire your first marketer? And if it's your first marketer, you want it to be a product marketer because you have a product-led growth strategy and you just want to make sure that the way that you're communicating with users when they land on your site is as good as possible. Like there's a bunch of resources out there for that in terms of how you recruit for those folks. And so to me, I think that a lot of the resources are available. But then the third thing and most important thing is once you actually go through those two, you have your core template. And then you have like what the internet provides you still most of humanity's knowledge is in people's brains and so a lot of the calls that i would do from nine to six is getting advice from folks right like who's the best marketing leader that you could possibly find and what do they do in order to hire product marketers and so you put the plan out to them you kind of share it in advance of async materials and you're like how can i improve this process and after about two to three expert based calls then you have your interview process that you're confident in from there i think that i've 
always had a little bit of imposter syndrome of like, who am I to say like, this is the best marketer that we could hire? Because like, I don't know. And I feel like I've built the intuition over the course of time is people that are humble, people who are hungry and people who are smart, both IQ and EQ. Obviously, you want to make sure that they have the hard skill sets that you need, but those are actually relatively easy to interview for. I think it's core characteristics that help people operate in a highly chaotic environment like a startup. Those are the most important things. And you just build that intuition. I've probably done a thousand interviews at this point. And through repetition, you're like, okay, this person's a killer. And usually I can recognize it in the first call. Does that imposter syndrome ever go away. What I mean by that is like now you're $1.5 billion company, Joe, but that means that the CRO or the VP of product or the VP of engine that you're hiring, their bar, it's raised. It's a new bar. And maybe your bar is raised. Maybe you've become a better CEO. Maybe the company is more professionalized. Maybe the company's just cooler. It's got cooler people on the cap table. It's just coming. But expectations have now re-risen both with yourself and others, does it ever go away? No. And I honestly think that imposter syndrome, like all things, like everything in moderation, but it it can be healthy to keep that like humble mentality. And to be clear, there's moments when it's really unhealthy, you know? So my executive coach has this saying, and it's really been helpful for me whenever I feel like from an imposter syndrome perspective, one of I trended from like yellow to red and like it doesn't feel good is that companies grow exponentially and people grow linearly. So when you put yourself in a position as CEO where the role basically changes every six months in terms of what the core focus is, you should feel imposter syndrome in certain situations. But as long as you keep in mind that like you are growing linearly and the company is growing exponentially, but you as CEO are going to be the person who's there longer than anybody, you just have to be like, this is part of the journey that I'm on. So I think everything in moderation, but that's where the circling back to the support system is being able to just express your feelings is really important to getting them out. So that way you can move forward from there. Well, the customer base is growing a thousand percent, right? On a given year, 10x. Your revenue is doubling and tripling and quadrupling. It's going crazy. Like who can 10x themselves in a year? You know, who can 10x themselves in a lifetime? It's an impossible task. You've talked about this concept called Dunbar's number. I think it's fascinating. Can you can you dive into it? Yeah. So Dunbar's number is like a theoretical number of the volume of relationships that an individual human can handle at any given time. It's actually reflected over and over again in certain human-based organizations, like tribes originally pre-civilization that we know today is like usually the upper bounds of tribe volumes was like 160. You actually see it in the structures within army is like the number of individuals within a certain limit caps out at 160. And so for For most organizations, what ends up happening is that when you hit 160, it sets off a phase transition of a lot of different systems across the organization that you need to rebuild. Because the reason why this is a natural breaking point for the number is like humans by default, actually, we still have quite a bit of reptilian brain. And if you don't feel like you have a sense of familiarity with someone, you don't trust them by default, right? Like you're leaning back. 
And that's because it's a safety mechanism. It's like you are an other, you are a stranger. So when it comes to companies, uh, you want to build the values that help you scale over the course of time. Like we assume positive intent is incredibly important at Loom. And I think that that kind of like gets at the root of the mistrust by default that humans have in our reptilian brains. But Dunbar's number is something that I think most startups end up experiencing, which is like when you hit 150, 160 approximately, that's when a lot of your systems break down. And I think that at the root of it, it's because you don't have relatively informal relationships with everybody across the organization. So then from there, you need to build systems that facilitate that as much as possible. And I do believe that one thing that is important for startups in this window of time to recognize is that how much did offices facilitate indirect relationships? And how much is the indirect relationships being facilitated in a digital HQ world? Um, and so I think that companies that are incredibly diligent about setting up their systems and processes relatively early on around how do you communicate, how do you collaborate, can actually help you ride through Dunbar's number in the phase transition that it sets off. But I also think that hopefully technology catches up to that a little bit. Like I think async video is something that's incredibly important in creating a relationship. When you can see somebody's face and hear their voice, you know, it engages parts of the human brains that plain text does not. And so I think that technology is going to catch up and it shouldn't be as painful for digital HQ phase transition. How many employees does Loom have? We just crossed 200. We started last year with 105. So we basically doubled over the course of the year. And do you feel like you've experienced some of that familiarity strain? For sure. It's really, really hard to keep up, especially without like water cooler talks or sitting down for lunch and you just happen to sit down with like 15 people and have a casual conversation. That doesn't happen in a digital HQ world. And so we've certainly experienced it ourselves. Now, I also think that when a lot of executives say that when we left the office, we left a lot of the culture behind, I think is like the right answer today. But I don't think it's going to be the answer going forward because you know, usually you need technology and solutions to catch up to problem statements. And I think we're just in the earliest days of a whole remote and hybrid operating system stack being built. So we've certainly experienced that loom. I do believe async video in our product itself has helped us kind of navigate that better than a lot of organizations, but it takes a lot of intentionality. Dude, I got to ask you, how cool was it to see Parker Conrad, CEO of Rippling, use loom to raise what his series C or D, whatever it was, it was big. And basically, well, do you want to say what he did? You'll do a better job than me. It was so cool. Talk about Kleiner and specifically Ilya just <laughs> being like super valuable to Loom. He invented Loom Zoom Room. He was at a conference and he was like the new fundraising process in a digital environment starts with a Loom. So async video recording, walking through the pitch. If a investor watches that and is intrigued, then you hop on a Zoom call and you end up having a live discussion about the slides that they had already sent over. So an incredibly efficient discussion relative to what it was if they're just presenting live for the first time. And then if you actually want to sign a term sheet because you're going to be working together for decades to come, 
if you get lucky and the company is successful, is that you get in the room together because we still like can't replicate 3D time together. So Ilya at a conference just off the top was like Loom Zoom Room. It's the new fundraising process. From there, it went viral on Twitter for a little bit. And then Parker Conrad, him and I have exchanged a few emails, met up a couple times sort of thing. I didn't get any heads up that this was happening. We had also just done a major in-depth interview with Protocol and had that article come up a month prior and nobody gave us a heads up. So that was like the most pleasant surprise when the headline dropped was that like Rippling raises a massive rounds and they did it with Loom Zoom Room. I was like, okay, it's here to stay. Super cool. Is email used at Loom? Only for external communication. You're kidding me. Well... Slack. Yeah, yeah. So it's Slack and Loom. Slack and Loom, yeah. So you do not get emails from your Loom mates? Only if it's forwarding an external message or we have this candidate or this interview. And so we try and keep our communication channels in the same thread. There's not as much interoperability between email and Slack, but yes, 99.5% of Loom mate messages to one another is in Slack and Loom. How many Looms are you sending in a given day? We have a new product experience coming out. And so now I'm kind of like thinking about this like bifurcation of types of looms that I'm sending. But let's just say that I send probably one external loom per day. So non-loomate. I send a loom that you could say is published to the entire company about three times per day. And then I send about three to four private looms per day. So on average, I'm sending about seven to eight looms per day at this point. You have said a quote, I'm going to read it to you and then I want your reaction to it because I couldn't agree more and I put my like go to market hat on. I feel the exact same way. What you said is, I would most likely never build a product that doesn't have a product-led growth or organic growth mechanism built into it from the very beginning because it allows you to focus a disproportionate amount of your brain power into solving pain points rather than trying to get more users to use it, it being the product. You still feel that way? I don't know when you said that. Absolutely. Yeah, that was an interview back in I think late 2018, early 2019. You know, I've become an angel investor at this point and have more conversations with earlier stage founders. And I think that the investor mantra of do no harm is like something that I increasingly appreciate over the course of time because you don't want to say something and then they go off and run and work on it for a couple months and come back and you're like, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant exactly. So very careful with the advice that I provide. But this is one that I still wholeheartedly believe in and actually quote relatively frequently is that if you could early on try and think really, really hard about how does this product spread itself? what are viral mechanisms and viral loops that you could build into the product. That is something that compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world, right? <laughs> 401k advisors talk about this all the time. Is like, if you could grow your product virally and that viral loop compounds over the course of five, 10, 20 years for the company, and you're able to spend that time on focusing on core value for the folks who are using the product, then that's something that you should spend months and months on in the early days. So think really hard about how this product spreads itself. And I think that, again, there's so many good resources out there. I think that we were incredibly fortunate to have Reforge and Brian Balfour's content out there. Reforge.com is essentially what they said is the 
MBA replacement for product builders. So you go in, you sign up for a course, and they have a ton of great content around viral loops that I recommend for any early stage founder. It kind of, in some way, weird analogy, but it reminds me of this podcast where the podcast, as long as I can continue to get great guests and produce great content, it just grows. And that's because of word of mouth. That's because when I do a good interview, my guest wants to share it. Once they share it, it goes to their social media. Then other people start learning about it. And there's a very natural flywheel that starts to get created there. And so for me, all I think about is great guests and producing great interviews, great conversations that are meaningful. And so all of my brain power is just focused. Let's just use that as like, that's my product. All I can do is focus on the product. There's something very liberating about that. Why do you think AWS and some of these other businesses have been so successful? Because you used to have a cognitive load of like, oh my God, where am I going to get my CPU from? I need to get another server. And then all of a sudden, boom, you don't have to think about that anymore. You just freed up so much of the business's time to go build the business, build the product. That's why that company's doing so well. Exactly. You know, when I'm talking about like any, it's like early stage founders, but also my grandpa had that small paper business and he like would strike deals with certain folks that even if it had, uh, let's just say Portillo's, he did the napkin printing for them. Could they have Titan solutions that are printed on every napkin? How does it spread itself? Was he would strike deals and provide them a 20% discount if they allowed for his branding to be printed on it. So like, how does this grow virally? How does it grow itself is the question that folks should be asking themselves. Super, super cool story. Have you still not paid for marketing? Obviously you're paying for marketing in some way, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it was some of my quotes from earlier interviews was like, we still haven't paid for marketing yet. And if you spliced that off, you'd be like, well, then Loom is saying it doesn't have to pay for marketing in the way that some former founders were like, we don't need sales. The second part of that sentence is that, and I think that that's a bad thing. I think that it's really important for every PLG company, assuming that you've gotten that, then there's boosters that you can add to that core rocket engine. Right? And so to me, paying to acquire users, as long as you're confident that they will sign up, that they will activate, and that they will become viral users themselves, then you should be spending as much as you possibly can to acquire users because you know that on the back end, it'll continue to spread itself and the LTV for that one user goes up over the course of time. So I think we were late to the game to get into paid acquisition. We started paying to acquire users in Q1 of this past year. It takes a long time to build the system zero to one to be effective and efficient with scaling your marketing spends. And now we have an incredible marketing team that's ripping on this every day. I'm like, even in the first 27 days of this year, it's like we have a couple of wins on the paid marketing front. And it's like, we can just keep compounding that because we have a, the PLG motion that we're putting them into on the back end. One of, so what you see in businesses like Atlassian, Twilio, name your product-led company, is that generally it's actually not until surprisingly the like 15 to 20 million ARR mark that they layer on go-to-market functions, sales, marketing, whatever that is. And generally speaking, it's because it is a product-led founder like yourself who really believes in the viral roots of the product. And then almost always, 
hindsight's twenty twenty. When they get to that point, they say, I wish I'd started that sooner. Do you feel like you fell into that trap or do you feel like the timing was good? Go to market, break down into sales led and then marketing and particularly the like paying to acquire users and demand gen part of the business. We couldn't hire a first salesperson until we actually had a business and enterprise tier for them to sell. Right? Like we started monetizing in January of 2019 and it was single tier prosumer model. And that was true until we had an alpha version of Loom for Teams, so our business and enterprise tiers, starting in April of 2020, but it didn't go live until October of 2020. We made our first sales hire in January of 2020. So they had three months to kind of like absorb what was going on across the products, what our plans were. Um, and then they were also talking to customers directly to try and learn about in the alpha and beta phases, are we going to meet the threshold of customers willing to pay for it, but they weren't actually earning any commission on some of these conversations, right? Like we just didn't have the product ready for them. So I think that we hired a salesperson as early as we possibly could have. And they were very patient with us as the product team figured out how to get this product to market, being Loom for Teams. But from a marketing perspective, we made that first marketing hire product marketing. I think that we should have pulled in paid acquisition much faster. I think that we should have started running marketing programs like demand gen of how do you use Loom? How should executives, how should HR teams, how should engineering teams think about using Loom? And then from there, I think we would have been able to ramp the sales team a little bit faster if we had pulled some of those things forward. But hindsight is 2020. Connect the dots looking backward. Can you talk about how you use Loom internally for interviewing candidates? Yes, I can. We love it at every stage of the talent process. <laughs> I think that we haven't actually requested looms by default. We say that they're optional, but we now have that as part of our application process if you want to include a loom link. And we actually now get looms as part of the application process. For those that we end up talking with, it's about 50% of our applications have loom videos. We do believe that that will be an increasingly normalized thing is like, do you send a video in with your resume? And from there, you actually get a high degree of fidelity of who an individual is over video versus like a paper resume. So that's incredibly powerful. Now, in terms of when it actually goes to the interview process, we don't want to artificially use Loom. And so we use it in the context of what you were bringing up before, which is meeting reduction, not meeting replacement. So we go through the hiring manager interview. We go through some sort of like skill set interview. So they usually have two. And then for the take home part of the process, if they're creating an artifact, whether it's a doc or slides or sheets, if they're crunching numbers, we ask them to record a loom walking through how they think about the artifact that they created as part of the take home. And then we analyze that asynchronously. So we look at the take home and we say, does it meet the bar for what we're looking for? And if it doesn't, then we don't schedule a super day. And so we've actually been able to make our interview processes significantly more efficient. And we've been able to save a lot of time. I think that this is best for all individuals, including the candidate because a lot of times you review your take home during the super day. And then if that doesn't pass the test, then you have two, three additional hours of interviews that were kind of moot. So for us, by enabling somebody to send in that artifact, including a loom walking through and we get the full fidelity of what their thinking is, we're able to 
save a bunch of time. And then from there, the last thing is that when we're super excited and confident about an individual, we have all the looms as our template that we call it. And so anybody who is part of the interview process records a loom talking about why they're excited to work with this individual. And this has been a superpower for us in terms of being able to close candidates. Like imagine every single person that you talk to in an interview process, you get a 30, 45, 60 second loom that's just gushing over why they're excited to work with you. I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's, it's very powerful. Also like PSA, I'm surprised that number is as low as 50%. If you're a candidate and you're applying to Loom, I mean, man, I can't imagine doing that without using a Loom. That is just kind of crazy. Uh, I'd say that I, I haven't looked on the back ends of somebody who recorded a Loom and sent it in and what ratio that is in terms of offers. I would love to see the stats of how many people didn't use a Loom and how many people made it to a certain threshold of an interview? I'd be, yeah, I'd be surprised. Yeah, that's a good one. That's far. a good takeaway for me. I'm going to talk to our talent team about that. Who's a CEO that you admire? So many. You know, I, I would say that there's this next generation of founders and CEOs that getting to builds alongside of and a couple of steps behind, honestly, is like the most valuable relationships. Dylan Fields joined Loom in our Series A and... Figma is just everything that you would want a company to be. And Dylan is the founder and CEO that created a lot of what Figma is today. And so I've been fortunate to be able to spend quite a bit of time with him. And because he's two steps ahead of us, like he has a lot of empathy for the stage that I'm going through and whatever the kind of like modern way to solve it is, has been incredibly valuable. I also think that there's a bunch of folks that are indirectly inspiring. And I think that, you know, it's kind of like the classics where your YouTube algorithm serves you up Steve Jobs and Elon Musk <laughs> content all the time, right? But I do think that some of the other folks that building kind of like side by side with, I think that Ivan Zhao and Notion are in terms of like deep product expertise and building a unique culture that it like resonates on the outside is incredibly valuable. I think that Andre uh, Miro, you talk about grit. You know, the company has been around a few more years than most people realize and what they've been able to do with the company just by keeping their heads down and building. And now they've built like a juggernaut of a company. So there's like folks that I learn from all the time in terms of just like random conversations throughout the weeks. And so those are the ones that come to mind. Man, I could keep going for hours, but unfortunately, I have to stop cramming in a lot before you have a baby due here, so I will be respectful <laughs> of time. I always wrap things up the exact same way. Question one, uh, what does the word grit mean to you? To me, grit is just continuing to show up every single day, regardless of how it is that you feel. Because I do feel like half of the battle is just getting your butt in the seat and being ready to work. And then from there, like everything else clicks in. I think grit is being able to show up. And there's so many things that I think that's an output metric, honestly. Like how are you able to show up every day? It's like, are you taking care of yourself? Do you feel like you're focusing on the right things? And when I say taking care of stuff, I mean in both like the personal and work setting. And so show up every day and put that smile on the face like my grandpa has been saying. Are you hiring? Let's assume you're hiring for every role. I mean, I can't imagine a role that you're going to tell me you're not hiring for. What's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, let's assume you apply, maybe consider using a loom in the application. 
are there any key roles? You're the CEO of Loom, so I think it's hard for you to play favorites, but are there any key roles that you're hiring for? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'd just say that I got this advice from Ilya very early on. He was like, once you start hiring engineers, you'll never stop. Once you start hiring salespeople, you'll never stop. (laughs) Right. So like we are scaling in both departments the most aggressively from like a volume perspective. But I would say that we're hiring across the board too. every single department. Loom is hiring right now. I think that we have an incredibly exciting opportunity in front of us. When you think about the most traffic site in the world actually became TikTok in December of 2021. It surpassed Google. Um, And so when you think about consumer leading the enterprise and how profound video is in a consumer context, like we barely scratched the surface of the impact that Loom plans to have. So ignore everything that I said up until this point. If you think that video is interesting and you want to check it out, you can reach me at joe at loom.com. Very easy. Joe Thomas, congrats. Super excited to send you some baby swag. Give me some pictures and I'll send you a selfie back with a Loom sweater. I appreciate your time, man. Yeah, thank you for having me, Jubin, and I'll get you with that bucket hat. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Thanks. Talk soon.